Welcome to Sons of a Gun, a podcast about the DC Universe. I'm Alex Gunn. I'm Justin Gunn. Where's Dad? I haven't seen him in a while. Yes, well, Dad is most likely at least partially on strike, thanks to the WGA strike and the SAG strike, which we support unequivocally. Um, Just to be 100% clear, they're fighting for the rights and the money they deserve, but there's still stuff to talk about in the world of the DC Universe, so we're going to get into it in a second. First of all, if you've got tips or stories you want us to cover, you can always email us at comicbookclublive at gmail.com or hit us up socially. But here's one real blast from the past here. Zachary Levi has gone on a recent podcast and once again reacted to the Shazam 2 reviews, Shazam Fury of the God reviews. Here's the quote from him from the podcast. He said, I really enjoyed making that movie and I really enjoyed playing that part. I don't know what the future holds for it all because unfortunately the second movie was not as well received. The audience score is still quite good, but the critic score was very oddly and perplexingly low and people were insanely unkind. Um... <laughs> you're you're laughing here. What's your what's your take? Justin? I mean, I just love I love his commitment to this, and to say it was perplexingly low. Uh, that's I the that's a great legacy to carry on. Legacy is important, as we're going to talk about in a second. Totally. And Zach just knows exactly how to build that build that legacy for Shazam. Here's what I would say: We're a couple of months past Shazam two at this point, and in hindsight. Did it become the internet's punching bag? Absolutely. Is that unfair? Absolutely. However, and this is a personal bone that I have to pick in general, but this whole separation of audience score and critic score and people pitting the two against (laughs) each other, it's dumb. And we got to stop it. Like all of those things and, and all apologies to both critics and people who submit audience cars are nonsense. Like they're, they're based on a lot of factors that aren't very clear when you just look at a number. Like just to take Rotten Tomatoes, for example, the critic score, and this isn't true across the board. Sometimes you can let Rotten Tomatoes know, hey, I'd prefer fresh or I'd prefer rotten. And granted, when you're writing a review, you're not like, this is below 50% or above 50%. There's gradations in there. There's things you like. There's yeah. things you don't like. So I like the- it rotten. <laughs> I like it nasty. Let's go. Yes, but I will say the large majority of the time, Rotten Tomatoes is just scanning a review. And I don't know how they do that. I don't work there. But they're just scanning a review and applying fresh or rotten to it regardless of what the critic themselves thinks. Like, you can look at any well-reviewed movie, by which I mean – hundreds of reviews, not well, like positively reviewed. And you can see there's some of their like, this movie is bad. And then there's a fresh next to it. And it's like, but how, what are they basing it on? Or like right. one quote, they take it out positive and that's fresh or one quote negative and that's rotten. So there's a lot of judgment calls going on there. And then in terms of the audience score, you need to actively, they changed it you know, at least not with TV shows, but they change it with movies. So you have to prove that you bought a movie ticket so they can review the thing. But that is the person who actively bought a movie ticket, decides to log on to Rotten Tomatoes, log into their account, verify their movie ticket, and then express their opinion. And that's somebody who I feels very passionately in one direction or the other. They're working harder than a lot of critics, uh, I feel like, to go out and do that. But that's why I think people who are just like me, I stand with the people. 
the audience scores and we're going to rise up and throw off the shackles of the critic. Like it's some sort of cultural war. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, you want the better score. You're just talking about the score that most pleases you. And really it's critics, unpaid critics who feel like critics. And then the audience is a whole nother thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's like a, that's the gradation to me. And at the end of the day, it's like, it's just sort of a vibe. It's a, mm-hmm. the critics, that's their job. So that's great. The audience score is sort of a vibe. If you, it's like a hundred percent rotten, it's like, well, that one's bad. Anything in between is sort of like, well, this is not for you. This is maybe for you. You can tell it's, 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 that's why I think rotten and fresh are actually good. It's like when you go to the fridge, you're like, this milk is maybe a little off, but it's all right. Mm-hmm. And then otherwise, it's either this milk is fresh or this milk is R-O-T-T-E-N. Get out yeah, of here. The other thing about it that I think people really misunderstand, particularly from the critic's perspective, is it's not prescriptive. It's not like this is what you should think. It's what I think and I took away from my critical analysis of watching the movie. I watch a ludicrous amount of movies, so I'm basing it upon that as well as current trends and feelings, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not like... I hated this movie, so you also hate this movie. It's here's my opinion yeah. on the movie and my critical analysis of it, and then you think whatever you think. So, like you're saying, I think a vibe check is a great way of thinking about it. I certainly use it like that. Like I, I don't like the binary breakdown of Rotten Tomatoes, but I certainly go to that, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's 14 percent. People hated that. Maybe I'll see it anyway. Maybe I'll love it. I don't know, but certainly that gives me an idea of whether I should go out to the movie theater this weekend. Same with if it's 100 percent. Or 99%, I'm like, oh, good, people seem to like this. Again, that just gives me more information, and then ultimately I can make my own decisions. So, well, I, yeah, yeah. I agree. But it's such a like, it's a complicated thing because there's so many, like, in back in the day, even like 15 years ago, it was like, people are going to go to the movies and they're going to see a movie, but they maybe haven't decided which one. And the critic scores actually were a huge factor. Now it's like such a, game of inches and it's like i'm not even anywhere near movie i'm watching something on my phone on an airplane so you're never going to get me no matter how fresh a movie is or i'm sitting in my i'm walking past the movie theater and if i happen to glance at at twitter and see this positive review i'm like oh i'm gonna walk in here right now and see this movie so it's just like anything chaotic and another example that I think fits here is like we just watched Secret Invasion, um, mm-hmm. a Mar- a Marvel show, and I think we both, at least you and I, were like, "This is a bad television program. This is poorly made." But I'm like, when I'm talking about, it, I'm like, "Ah, th- there's this cool fight. If you, oh, you might like this. It's 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 a conversation." And the people the people that are so caught up on the the binary of like fifty eight percent. I don't know. We're going to have to revisit this. Well, and I think part of this, to get it back to the whole Shazam 2 of it all, is Zachary Levi is still stumping to get his character in the new DCU. That's what he wants to do. He wants a job. He wants to work for James Gunn and continue his character and continue to be a movie star. So I think that's what he is, maybe in a calculated way, maybe in an uncalculated way, but that's certainly what he's playing here. He certainly seemed to become... Very unhinged by these reviews right around when Shazam 2 came out, so I don't know how much he's feeling that now. Um, but ultimately, the other part of this, and this is not to lump on it, like to take away the lumping on him, he's on a podcast talking about other things. Of course, they're going to ask him about it. So this is not yeah. him being like laser focused on this thing that haunts him in his past so much as people are going to keep asking about it and he's going to keep giving this answer. So I don't know. that. That's fair, but I also think he is a little laser focused on this thing <laughs> that haunts it from the past. 
And I think the milk analogy fits here where it's like, hey, man, that milk is is rotten. Throw it away. Stop trying to tell people it's fresh and have them pour it on their cereal because it's not going to happen. And I get when you have something you just can't let go. But and also, look, he's fine in the movie. He's doing the same thing. It's just like not, you know, everyone's taste. Yeah. Not to his taste. Don't yuck his yum, I guess, is the takeaway here. Why don't we move on? Blue Beetle, the director of Blue Beetle, planned on pitching a Bane origin story before he found out he was getting Blue Beetle. Here's the exact quote from a Den of Geek interview. I wanted to pitch ideas. One of them was a Bane origin story. I always thought that there was something interesting to ex- in exploring his reality and how a character like that came to be. The conversation was not about that, he said when he went to the studio. <laughs> Uh, instead, they said there's this character that we've been developing for a couple of years, the Blue Beetle Latino superhero, and ultimately that's what he ended up doing. Uh, I'm curious, though, just using this as a springboard, would you be interested in watching a Bane origin story? I think we already know. I mean, he was um, uh, born in the darkness, mm-hmm. uh, if I remember correctly. So, like, that's yeah, sort of. You merely adopted it, uh, I think. Uh, something, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's sort of, we just close our eyes, and that's the, the Bane origin story. Yes. So your answer is no, is what you're saying. You don't need to see that. Well, I, I don't. And like, I feel like it's very hard to go back into especially any of the previous DCU things and be like, I'll dig this out, especially though the Nolan stuff. Like, I think that stuff is such a uh, he was doing Nolan's movies do the dance better than anyone else where they're so self-serious, but they're actually still good. They're still mm-hmm. interesting and, and visually cool for the most part. And DC's tried to be like, we'll do that again. And it just isn't working. And I think across the board, Marvel's still trying to be like, we'll do the thing we did. And it's like, that also isn't working really. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's very hard to double back and try to, you know, replant the same vegetable in the same ground. I think you have to sort of do, that's why I'm excited that this conversation that he's describing went this way. The Blue Beetle does feel different and it feels like mm-hmm. the right thing for DC to be releasing at this very moment. I totally agree with you. I'm glad they're doing a Blue Beetle movie instead of a Bane origin story. But I will say, to go the opposite direction, these characters can be taken so many different ways. You know, when you look at the you Bane love stuff, Bane. You I do. love I Bane. I do love Bane. I do love Bane. And Bane is a great character, and Harley Quinn as well. One of the funniest things on that show. But there, you know, they didn't do anything with like the Santa Prisca stuff. They didn't do anything with like the Luchador origin type stuff. The Dark Knight Rises stuff was iconic and great, and I love it. But there's other things you can do, you know, and yeah. would it be better than the Dark Knight Rises take on Bane? Maybe, maybe not, but some filmmaker could certainly do something there, so we'll see. Uh, I agree with you. Blue Beetle is the right direction to go, but at the same time, I think you could do something here, potentially, down the road. You know, it's hard to have people or to hope that people are going to take the right lessons from things. But we just had uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer come out, and it's like these movies are like – Oppenheimer's not IP, but I mean, the history is sort of IP in a way, <laughs> but they are, uh, right? But yeah. they're like original movies. They're not like good. IP stands for international problem, right? Yeah, exactly. That's why I, that's <laughs> why I use it. International problem. It's a big international problem. Yeah. Uh, that, just like the Transformers movies are a big international problem. Yeah. I By think. the way, that's, this is a little bit of side trip. Have the beasts stopped rising yet or are they still rising? Like, are they still headed up there? No, they're plateauing. Um, oh. It's a plateauing of the beasts is where <laughs> oh, we're at right yeah. now. That's so cool. It's a, 
they're chill. They're pretty chill. They're grabbing the drink. Uh, but what I, what I was saying is like originality feels like it's could be we could tip over where it's like, you know what? Maybe we need to move a little further away from what's come before to find great success. Everyone wants that money. So the lessons of Barbie and Oppenheimer maybe maybe like let's let's take a swing. Awesome yeah. stuff. Totally. All right. Speaking of swings, the big swing we've been talking about all along on this podcast is the new DCU and the movie continuity. James Gunn once again has cleared it up on Instagram in response to a post and a question there. And he very specifically said, once again, DC Studios movies and canon start with legacy. And I think this confusion comes from the fact that like, uh, the cast of Blue Beetle is going out and being like, the DCU starts here. And people are like, what is going on? And like we talked about in a previous podcast, Blue Beetle is going to continue as a character. However, that is not the first DCU movie. Superman Legacy is the first DCU movie. And we're also going to see other characters. We'll probably see John Cena as Peacemaker, but the Peacemaker series is not canon. We'll just see him pop up. Viola Davis probably as a band to Waller, same sort of thing. They're going to pick and choose. This is just me speculating here, but they're going to pick and choose the actors that they like, and they're going to bring them forward, but it's going to be a fresh start for them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think they're going to pick and choose stuff that is working. It's yeah. like if you were... If someone showed up to your birthday party and they were like, hey, I saw a car accident on the way here to the party. Was that part of the party? And you'd be like, no, the party starts now. We're having a good party. Don't worry about the stuff that happened before. I will tell you what's fun here. And I, it's very funny that he has to keep saying that over and over again. He has been saying for, at this point, almost a decade that the Groot who was in the first Guardians of the Galaxy died and been replaced by... Uh, the new yeah. Groot is an entirely different character that's also named Groot. And he still has to reiterate that like at least once a year because people just don't get it. So and, and I, I understand. Yeah. But I will say both of those choices, he sort of hedged. Well, the Groot thing is sort of like, everyone's like, well, that's the same Groot. And he's like, actually, no, it's, we went a different way. It's like, well, probably should have just made him the same Groot, though. We liked him. <laughs> and the same with this. He was like, these movies are fantastic. The Flash is the best movie I've ever seen. Oh, but we don't. That's not actually part of my thing. I don't. That's not going to be a part of this. So, like, he was a little bit having both ways. And now that's why he has to come so hard in saying it now. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Superman Legacy, this is just a total praise fest from the production designer of the movie, Beth Mickle, who talked to Screen Rant about this. Uh, there's a very long quote from her. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically what she was saying here, which I thought was kind of nice to hear, is that like we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, James Gunn comes repaired. Specifically, she said a lot of times you're really finding it or a lot of times the production designer and the costume designer find it for the director. But he, meaning James Gunn, comes always with a brilliant first draft of the script, which is also very rare and a really clear idea of the movie is going to be shot, what he wants it to feel like. He has strong references. He has fantastical musical references. And he's really articulate about it. He really lays out a wonderful roadmap for my team and me and to the other creative departments to follow. Um, and she also goes on to clarify, but at the same time she gives everybody he gives everybody creative license to really experiment and come up with new ideas sounds great i love this <laughs> the, it's me too i i'd really do like to hear this anytime you can hear positive production stories there are so many bad ones but i would also say she's describing what his job just is mm -hmm. his job is to come prepared like the idea that she's praising some the james so hard dad 
Shouts to dad. So hard for Liddy to be like, yeah, he seems to have an idea of what he wants the stuff to look like that he's filming on that day. And it's like, yeah, you, <laughs> you can't just hope it's right. And it's just continues to be perplexing that so many movies, especially so many superhero movies, are like, yeah, we'll figure it out in this some end post or in this future time. And that is I would be so stressed if I was mm-hmm. in the situation where I was like, yeah, we just, we're just going to shoot this part and then the rest is going to be um, CGI that will work out sometime in the future. T- so terrifying. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it sounds like James Gunn goes um, above and beyond in these sort of things, but at the same time, he's doing his job. And so few people treat it as a job, understand it as a job, do it as a job, um, that it becomes this rare special thing when people actually think holistically about the entire organization, what the director's job actually is, which is essentially being boss of a small company for a couple of months. So good for him. I'm glad he did it. But like you say, uh, I wish a lot more people did it at the same time. And I don't want to say like it's people, other directors who are bad at their jobs or being mm-hmm. lazy, but I think it's it's hard for a lot of people to have that to keep that many things in your brain. A, mm-hmm. B, it's it's a high stakes situation, and it's often easier to pass off like, oh, they're going to do that. I don't have to think about that. It's actually no, you do. You do have to think about that. And also, a big project like this, they're in. 500 meetings, I'm mm-hmm. sure it's easy to just get lost in the middle and show up and be like, uh-oh, I didn't do any of my homework and the project's due right now. Well, seriously, I mean, just to wrap this up a little bit, also a lot of these directors, not James Gunn because he's done a bunch, but there was a point when he did this, are coming from like, oh, I was uh, doing a fun indie film with my friends to, great, now you're the manager of a company of a thousand people for the next six months. Good luck! Good luck! You're going to do all these things that you, techniques that you had no idea how to do before. And some people excel at it. Clearly, James Gunn excelled at it. He went from still, you know, sizable, but like indie-ish horror movies to jumping up with Guardians of the Galaxy, which is an enormous step, but clearly he knew how to do it and was prepared to do it and probably made mistakes, but also learned from it. But a lot of people are just thrown in the deep end there. And that's always another mystifying thing about movies is the way that that was such a trend for a while. And so many of those situations blew up in the faces of the the studios because the person was like, I don't know how to do this. I went from managing a crew of 50 people to 500. That's more people than I know. I can't talk. I can't remember all of this stuff. Why did you, why are you having me do this? But of course, you're, this is your shot. This is your classic Hollywood. Like, I made this indie that made like $5 million. And the studio's like, now do that except to a billion dollars. Yeah. With this IP driven movie. And that is, that's crazy. For everyone that they're like, this is a good way that we do these things. It is wild. Uh, Why don't we wrap up here with one last thing? So The Flash, super bomb at the box office. But as it turns out, minor hit on VOD, video on demand. It debuted on July 18th. And as of the last week, it was number one on, at the very least, iTunes, Vudu, and Google Play. So... Shouts out to The Flash. Clearly, it seems to be working. People were definitely waiting to check it out at home. And I think I think that points to one of the reasons, not just that it was a bad movie, but one of the reasons that it just didn't work in theaters. And it ties back to that Rotten Tomatoes discussion we were having at the beginning, is people heard it bad, it was bad, and were like, well, I want to check it out, but I'm not going to spend 
five hours going to the movie theater and paying a hundred dollars to take my entire family when I can get it for 20 bucks at home. And I don't know. That's the way of the world right now. Yeah. And I don't know. That doesn't seem bad. That doesn't no. seem like the, that money's still money for that's going mm-hmm. to the same people that had it before. So I, I think we, like we talked about the flash is being treated like it was the Ishtar, <laughs> a famous bomb in mm-hmm. all of Hollywood history. And it's actually a fine movie. And there's been a recent resurgence of Ishtar while we're talking about it. Yeah. Ishtar's the Flash of uh, from like 50 years Ishtar ago. is the reverse Flash, if you will. Mm, yes, good. Elaine May, I think, made Ishtar. And everyone gives her a bad. Elaine May, a famous comedian. Very totally. good. But that's, that's all to say. The Flash, I think, is a good movie. Uh, not a good movie, but it's like a fine movie. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about it. And it's, we talked about it on this very era. I had, when I was uh, dropping my son off at camp this morning, a guy told me that he liked The Flash better than Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which my son turned to me and was like, well, he's wrong, but. <laughs> Your son turned to you and said, who's this asshole? Yeah. Dude, what's going on here? And that asshole, that was Andy Muschietti, the director of The Flash. <laughs> it was not. All right. I believe it. Why don't we wrap up there? If you've got tips or stories, again, you want us to cover, you can email us at comicbookclublive at gmail.com. If you'd like to support this podcast and all the podcasts, we do patreon.com slash comicbookclub. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Facebook and YouTube. Come hang out. We'd love to chat with you about the DC Universe. Apple, Spotify, not Stitcher, because Stitcher is going away at the end of August. If you subscribe on Stitcher, please go and subscribe literally anywhere else. We are on every major platform. But you can check us out socially at Comic Book Club Live on Twitter, Comic Book Club Live on TikTok and Instagram, ComicBookClubLive.com for this podcast and many more. Until next time, Dad, uh, this is just going to keep happening in the comments. So get used to it. They're going to keep asking the same old questions. And Dad, I'm sorry. I just want to tell you, Zachary Levi is outside uh, the house knocking on the window. And I don't know what to do. So please come home and help me. 